Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 57 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the City of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, for the second time this summer, a member of seminal sketch comedy group The State, alongside other screen credits too numerous to mention. Most importantly for our present purposes, author of a new book entitled A Better Man. Hello and welcome, Michael Ian Black. Hello to you, Mike Tully. Who else from the state was on your show this summer? Uh, Carrie Kenny Silver was on. Oh, yeah. Um, talking. You talking up her Emmy nod? She was here taking a victory lap for her nod for the Quibi reboot of Reno 911, which you were also featured in. I am, but I did not receive any nominations for anything. Yeah, that was uh, highway robbery. I agree. I totally agree. You were terrific as the uh, Israeli security force with a street legal tank. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It was uh, well-researched, uh, impeccably acted on my part. I thought you did great. Um, and speaking of victory laps, you're enjoying one right now. Now, I've written several books, and I know from experience that proofreading alone takes a lot more time than the amount of time you get to get pats on the back and to pontificate and all the things you've written in your wonderful new book. So I hope you are enjoying getting to talk about and receiving praise for this book, which is very praiseworthy, A Better Man. Well, thanks. Um, uh, are you saying that you found typographical errors in the book that I missed? In which case, I'm going to be devastated. No, have you had that experience? I've had that two out, Not of, yet. Two out of four times. Not with this book yet, but I'm sure somebody will find one and point it out to me, and then I will be mortified. It's a horrible feeling, and it's a it's a wrong that can't be undone. Second editions, be damned. Uh, no, I made it like two-thirds of the way through. I was up, appropriately enough, for a book about parenting. I was up with a sick child most of the night, so my... Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I think she's going to pull through. Um, it's not, Is it your it, child or somebody else's child? I, uh, I'm i a giver. I'm not a licensed doctor <laughs> per se, but I've just always sort of had a, like, sort of a country knack for these sorts of things. So uh -huh. I whipped up an elixir, and uh, and we think he's going to be just fine. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, so this book displays something that was uh, a lot of something that was not at all associated with your comedic persona early in your career. That is sincerity. Sure. This is a very earnest and sincere book. It's a letter to my son, a love letter to my son, whom mm -hmm. I love. That's nice of you. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm great. I'm great. <laughs> I'm great for having done this. It's interesting to me that you of all people would write a book about the the meaning of being a man. I didn't know anything about your background. You obviously had far from a traditional um, background. In in short, you um, uh, your your father passed away when you were younger, and then your mother remarried a woman. And for somebody growing up, I also grew up in New Jersey around the same time as you. That that puts you outside of the the norm. What I knew is the you that I first encountered on the state, where as an on air personality, you'd be there in leather pants and billowing shirts, and. I had trouble placing you on not the gender spectrum, but definitely on the sexuality spectrum back then. So you seem like you are coming from a unique place when it comes to talking about gender and what it means to be a man. Well, uh, certainly throughout my life, um, I have been assumed to be gay. Mm -hmm. um, 
I don't think that has anything to do with growing up in a lesbian household. I think it's just <laughs> the, the, the combination of personality and attributes that I kind of inhabit. And that never really bothered me. Um, but I did find myself struggling a bit, you know, into my 20s, 30s with sort of just understanding like what it kind of meant to be a man, setting aside sexuality, just like what does it mean to be a man? Um, and, you know, when you have children, as I do now, it kind of forces you to, to confront those things and, and to think about how you want to be as a father to your kids, uh, as a husband, and just as a human being in general. You wrote this book in essentially the second person, which, as we all know, is the rarest of all persons, um, mm -hmm. because it is addressed specifically to your son. I'm assuming he's read it. What was your 18-year-old, maybe 19-year-old now, son Elijah's reaction to this book you've written to him for him? Well, first of all, he has had it on his nightstand for the last, I don't know, four or five months. That son of a hadn't, bitch. Hadn't cracked it open at all. <laughs> like... You know, I'm like, hey, I wrote a book to you. <laughs> what do you think of it? I haven't read it. I haven't, I haven't read it yet. So this past week when it came out, this Tuesday, it came out a week ago, he, I think, finally decided to open it up more out of guilt than anything else. Um, and so far, he doesn't love it. What's, what specific feedback has he given you? What does he not love? Well, what he said is it feels like it's not you because it's my written voice speaking ah. to him as opposed to my speaking voice the way I normally talk to him. But I don't really think that's it. I suspect that the reason the book is making him uh, uncomfortable, and he said he's going he's gonna to finish it, is because I think it's hard for him to read something in which his dad is being pretty vulnerable, you know, and pretty open. And... I think that's probably hard for um, an 18, well, 19-year-old boy to read because of all the weight and expectations that we put on our father's shoulders. Um, I know I did. And uh, I think, I think that's, it's, probably a, it's probably a tough read for him because, you know, because I'm not, I don't present myself as Superman in this book by any means. Like, I'm no. definitely showing all my foibles. I felt like I related to you. I relate to you as a parent. It's interesting. I'm kind of at the exact halfway point. You're talking about your children being born, and that's still fairly fresh in my mind. I have an eight-year-old and a two-year-old, and you're talking about sending them off to college, which is depressing because it's just barely on the, the horizon. Oh, oh, oh. And, uh, <laughs> and I... Uh, I feel like you, like there was this sort of handbook to masculinity that everybody got that I did not get. My father one time, somebody was, he was letting a mechanic do something really, really, really basic, like put air in our tires. Mm -hmm. And he just turned to me, frankly, I was already an adult at this point, And he was just like, there's a lot of things I should have been able to teach you. Mm -hmm. So it's been an open thing that, and my wife is, you know, when we get the Ikea stuff, it's a foregone conclusion that I'm going to entertain the kids while she puts it together. I often relate to, I don't know if you've seen Starship Troopers. Yeah, years ago. I don't remember it well. Okay, so they're like the fresh recruits, and then they've been in like two battles, and they still feel like kids, but then they bring in the fresh recruits, and they realize that they are grizzled veterans by comparison. I often, when I see uh, young adults in my office, for example, I'm like, oh, I must be the man here, because you're clearly a child relative <laughs> to me. Um, but we don't 
talk about that so much. You say in in the acknowledgments of, of your book, A Better Man, that you feel like women are happy to have conversations about what are we doing here? What are we supposed to do? And your book, therefore, isn't so much about finding answers. It is about just making it okay to have the conversation. Guys, what is masculinity, right? Yeah. And it's a, it's, it is true that women have kind of space in their lives to talk to other women about being women, and men don't have that really at all. Uh, not to talk about women necessarily, but to talk about being guys. And we suffer for it. And it's a, you know, it's a real paradox because the thing that we have such, the, the, the reason we have such a hard time explaining it to ourselves, explaining what it means to be a guy to ourselves is the same thing that prevents us from having the conversation, which is a sense of masculine invulnerability. Like if we show that we're confused and dumb and weak and we don't understand these things, then it makes us less of men, uh, according to sort of the rules of masculinity. And so it, it, it becomes a kind of paradox that we have a hard time breaking out of. And so, you know, my book is meant to be just, you know, a way to, to put a little chip in that armor. I'm interested in, you know, as we all are nowadays, hopefully, in in gender roles. And I have a boy and I have a girl. And like many people, I parroted the line that, you know, there was this old school way that you dress a boy in blue and you dress a girl in pink and you put the football in the boy's crib, et cetera, et cetera. In my experience, they kind of come out of the box like that. My son was making revving noises with anything you'd hand him that had wheels. My daughter, from the time she figured out how to use her fingers, would take chicken noodle soup and rub it in her forehead, imitating my wife putting on moisturizer. So there is something there, right? There is an essential manness to many, not all men, and many, but not all women. We, right? There is something left when you strip away toxic masculinity and, uh, you know, real men don't cry, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think is the core of masculinity that that should be there, that can't, that has to be there? Well, first of all, I agree with you. I mean, I do think that there is something kind of inherently male and something inherently female in a lot of boys and girls, the kinds of things that we generally associate with boys and with girls. That being said, and that was, and your experience was my experience with my boy and girl. That being said, that's um, not everybody. It's not all boys. It's not all girls. I don't even know if, it, if it's the vast majority. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know what the biological kind of chromosomal differences exist that explain those types of behaviors. However, I also agree with you that they come out of the box the way they are. So mm -hmm. if your son turns out to be a kid that isn't interested in revving noises and isn't interested in footballs and is, isn't interested in any of that stuff, they'll let you, he'll let you know and your daughter will do the same. And I think it's our job as parents to just be listening and just be receptive and just understand that our children are communicating to us who they are. We cannot impose whatever, whatever personality or traits we want upon them. They will not accept it. And so there's no point in trying. Um, like me and my wife, like we were super progressive, like trying to be the kind of like gender neutral parents, like, hey, son, here's your doll. And hey, daughter, here's your truck. And they didn't give a shit about any of it. Like they just wanted what they wanted. And, you know, it was startling to kind of realize, oh, like these are just, 
the people who they are, and we just have to let them inform us. And it's been good for us to do that. How much effect do you feel like you've had on your kids? Maybe you don't even know until they get into their 20s and 30s and 40s. You talk in the book, A Better Man, about watching your kids, the frustration of watching your kids repeat your mistakes. I know, I feel like I'm in the zone right now. So my son is eight. First, there's the keeping them alive stage, and then there's the stopping them from being a sheer animal stage. And I know I'm only a couple years away, if I'm lucky, from them sort of tuning me out, maybe listening more than they let on. But right now, he thinks I actually know what I'm talking about and tries actively to internalize my advice. So I'm, I'm really trying to maximize this three or four year window because I feel like it might end up being the most important one. How much effect do you feel like you've had on your kids? Because as you've experienced and as I am already experiencing, even with the two year old, they're kind of just the way they are. I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's impossible to know kind of how you influence your kids negatively or positively. I do think you are obligated as a parent to do your best and to attempt to influence them as positively as you can, mostly by modeling the behavior that you want to see in them, not by telling them shit, but, 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 but like, being the person that you hope they will try to be. That being said, like we all fall short, we all fail, we all screw up. I do, you know, I feel like on a daily basis. Um, and so they will take those lessons too. They will take the time that you lose your temper, or, you know, my, if my wife and I are arguing with each other in front of them or disagreeing with each other in front of them or, you know, whatever we're doing that is negative, they'll internalize that too. Hopefully, they also internalize the moments when my wife and I make up from having argued. And they synthesize all of that to get a full idea of what it means to be a human. Um, we impart whatever wisdom we can. They receive whatever they're going to receive. And then you hope for the best. One of the things that you touched on, and I'm curious if you discovered it or if it's just a theory you cultivated on your own, is that the traditional concepts of masculinity that we've all inherited is tied to societies that needed to produce soldiers. And all of the pieces really fit very well when you need people to just bear things in silence and, you know, rub some dirt into it and don't be a sissy. When the neighboring warlord was going to come to town and it was all hands on deck, then the traditional notion of masculinity worked like a charm. And when you look at it through that lens, you can really understand just how infuriating, say, like the Vietnam generation must have been to uh, a generation of World War II veteran hard asses. Sure. I, it's not my own theory by any means. Um, you know, I think it's something that a lot of people suspect, a lot of guys suspect, like, yeah, the reason the way we are the way we are is because, like, dudes had to fight each other to survive, like, or hunt lions or whatever you were doing. Um, there's a great book called War and Gender, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to find the author in front of me, but I can't at the moment. But that's, I, re I relied on that book for a lot of the chapter that talks about war. I also, uh, you know, talked about uh, what they carried and uh, a couple other books. But the idea, I think, the, the, the kind of foundational idea behind masculinity is that might makes right idea that is millennia old. And it makes a lot of sense in a pre-industrial age where the bigger and stronger you are, the more power you have. Those ideas are now utterly anachronistic. 
they don't really serve us as individuals from day to day. Um, you know, as soon as somebody invented a gun, that idea became totally outdated. So we're relying on a kind of junk DNA that is in our uh, definition of who we are as guys. And it's not really serving us nearly as well anymore. And so I'm sort of advocating that we need to kind of expand our ideas of what it means to be a man. Something specific that you touch on, um, just parent to parent, is you talk about downloading a kid-friendly browser for the mm -hmm. internet for your kids at some point. Where's the technology on those nowadays? Because, you know, uh, Zoom school has thrown... My, I don't know when I thought my kid was going to be on a computer. Now he lives on a computer and, and he knows how to right-click and everything. It seems like something that as a society we ought to really prioritize above almost everything that people are yelling about on TV every day. And furthermore, it seems like something that as much as we say, oh, what are you going to do? The cat's out of the bag. You know, Pandora's box is open. I believe if we really took it seriously, we could figure out a way to create an Internet where kids can't see triple anal. Like, where do you find the technology on that to be? And is there any hope for uh, saving kids from the Internet? First of all, my question to you is, what is triple anal? Is that somebody with three buttholes? Yeah, and they like it in every single one. Yeah. <laughs> my honest uh, take is we definitely tried to monitor, to limit screen time. We did everything that we could think to do to keep our children's, you know, uh, virginal eyes from this stuff. And I don't think anything works. I think they just, they're smarter than we are when it comes to technology. And I think they always will be. They talk to their peers, like their friend, their friends have phones or their friends have tablets or whatever it is. Like you, you can only protect them so much. Um, once they get into like school age, to me, it's just like, I, I just kind of threw up my arm. It doesn't mean I was saying, yeah, watch triple anal at home. I definitely wasn't encouraging that, but I also feel like by the time they're teenagers, it's like they've been exposed to everything. And and I don't and I don't know what the answer is. Well, I guess then the more important thing, if it is sort of hopeless, at least in the present term, then what, if any, effect do you find that that has? Because I don't know that my exposure to things of that nature was really all that different from even like my dad's you know like there was always going to be a, a stag film or a nudie picture maybe bob guccione jr had introduced girls peeing by the time i was finding you know magazines by the train tracks uh -huh. but it wasn't it just it's just a quantum leap to what kids can see now slow up bro girls pee <laughs> it's weird but only sexually <laughs> so don't worry about okay. it okay yeah okay um i don't you know there's so many studies about the effects of pornography on children. And I don't know that there's any consensus on it. I really don't. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I obviously don't want my young children looking at hardcore pornography, because I think there is something kind of traumatizing about it and strange. But, um, but I don't know that I don't know that it has any long term Ram negative ramifications. I'm not saying it doesn't. Right. I just don't know. But it's at least not obvious that it's horrible. No, it's not obvious to me that it's horrible. And maybe I'm missing something that is um, patently obvious to everybody else. <laughs> but it's 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 not. It, I mean, it, it's intuitive that it would be horrible. Yes. But I don't know that that's actually the case. Well, that's I mean, encouraging. 
one of the things we, I think, you know, culturally we talk about all the time is the difference between sex and violence as it's shown on screen. And we don't seem to have these same conversations to nearly the extent that we do about body counts piling up in movies and television shows um, that we do about the act of sex. I don't know that violence or violent video games has any long-term damaging repercussions on children. And I don't know that pornography does either. I tried to limit both of them when my kids were little, but you know, as I said, by the time they were adolescents, I just feel like they were exposed to everything they wanted to be exposed to. That's right. And at that point, all you can do is really stigmatize and thereby perhaps fetishize. Um, I, uh, and shame. And I try to shame as much as possible. It's a valuable tool. I, I, I come from the Irish Catholic tradition of shame. I know you come from the Jewish. Different, different, <laughs> but ultimately working towards the same goal. Yeah. yeah. So whenever I have a, a dad on the show, I like to ask them, you're maybe my third dad guest speaking about the subject of parenthood. I like to throw a couple of specific questions at you that might inform the way I would approach specific situations with my kids as they grow older. Uh, question number one. You know, I try to separate fact from fiction with my kids, or I will when it comes to the birds and the bees, but let's say the kids in the street corner are telling my son, real men treat erectile dysfunction with the pulverized northern white rhinoceros horns. Michael Ian Black, what do I tell him? You say, hell yes, they do. That's how <laughs> we deal with it. That, that and uh, tiger gallbladders. That's what we do. Raging boners. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Raging boners. Even if you think you got a good one, wait till you see what happens with the tiger bladder. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do I talk to my kids about salvia? Uh, salvia's pot? Yeah. <laughs> That's a terrific There's answer. There's indica and salvia, is that right? Oh my goodness, no. Uh, no, salvia's, uh, India, indica and sativa are the two sides the of weed. What's salvia? Salvia is the legal stuff that's somewhere in a shadowy hinterland between weed, catnip, and PCP. Oh, it's, give it a try, I would say. It's legal. Give it a try. And I can't say I recommend it, but I'll, I'll let my kids know. Michael Ian Black says it's fine. Um, can, I, you, can you can you go into like a vape shop and buy that? I believe it is still quasi legal. Yeah, yeah. You can definitely uh, get it on the internet and not have to worry about getting it delivered to your house. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, maybe my son and I'll try that together you know, as a bonding experience. Long weekend coming up. So, is it speedy? Does it make you go kind of jittery and crazy? The one time I tried it, I was with a guy. Is oh. your son? <laughs> That's a story for another time. I can, actually, I can tell the story. I was with a guy who was uh, looked and sounded exactly like Hulk Hogan even before we tried it, and mm-hmm. um, and he was like, "All right, well, let's try it." And then we uh, we passed it around, and all we felt was a little bit tired. But there's numerous videos on the internet of people trying it. People and, feeling uh, a little jump, bit tired, jumping out windows. Oh, 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 yeah. Well, I, I'm not I'm not that interested in jumping out of windows, but I do like the the sensation of being a little bit tired. <laughs> it's terrific. It's terrific if you're if, if you're, you're sleepy, having trouble sleeping, and you're on a ground floor. I say I say give salvia a whirl. Uh, finally, I want to raise my kids in an accepting and nurturing environment, but I also need to let them know that they are dead to me if they wear Crocs. How do I approach that? Oh, I'm the wrong guy to ask because I I got a pair of Crocs years ago, and for a while it was all I was wearing. I loved them. I thought, oh, I know this. I know these are terrible. But I just, I like the way they look and I like the way they feel. I like kind of rubber clogs with holes in them. It's not <laughs> something that I would have thought would appeal to my uh-huh. aesthetic, and yet it uh, did. Vaguely reminiscent of cartoon cheese. <laughs> yeah, it is reminiscent of cartoon cheese. I, I like them. Uh, I feel badly about it. 
but I have to own, I have to own my truth, Mike. I like Crocs. All right. With that, I will uh, let you go. That's that's not very helpful. So I'm dead to you. you. I get it. You you understand where I stand vis-a-vis Crocs. It's a it's a wonderful book. It's a warmly written book, and uh, it's a valuable insight into both parenting and uh, being uh, a man. So I recommend everybody check it out. Thank you so much for your time, Michael Ian Black. The book is available now. It is called A Better Man. Thanks, Mike. More to come on the Tully Show. Tyler Kornak is one of the creators and stars of the Butt Boy motion picture phenomenon streaming now on Amazon Prime and elsewhere. I will be speaking to Tyler after this. Welcome back to The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Perhaps you like me sometime in the last few months. We're all spending more time than usual indoors. Uh, I've had the same experience that I've had. You're flipping through Amazon Prime. You're looking for something fresh and new and different. You're not going to watch The Man in the High Castle no matter how many times Amazon insists that you want to. And then you ask yourself, wait a second, did I just see uh, a little icon for a movie entitled Butt Boy? And you flip back and sure enough, you did. And uh, you have a pleasant evening to look forward to once you have that experience. Joining me now, um, along with his partner at the Tiny Cinema Instagram account, the creative force behind one of the year's cinematic standout experiences. Hello and welcome, Tyler Kornack. Oh, that's nice of you. Thank you. Thanks for uh, talking to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad it was an enjoyable night. That's always good to hear that it turned out being an enjoyable night. What sort of feedback do you get on this movie? Um, it's very mixed. I bet. As we thought it was going to be. Um, yeah. I think the the title sets forth an expectation that um, that a lot of people expect it to be a little bit more goofy and obvious humor and, and fart jokes and stuff like that, but then you get no. something else altogether when you watch it. And that was kind of the whole point to us, but I think we get a lot of uh, that expectation... Uh, makes people angry a lot of the time. So we it's either that or the people love it. So it's one of the two, and uh, yeah, we're still dealing with that. We're still hearing about that all the time, which is kind of what we wanted, you know. Sure. Back to that, and uh, yeah. Here is a question I don't think I've ever asked a guest before about a project they're promoting. Why did you do this? Why <laughs> did you make a movie called Butt Boy? I still don't know, to be honest. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, I... So we have a comedy group online called uh, Tiny Cinema, and that's who I made it with, those guys. And we, yeah. this was a short film that we had that did really well on there. And to be honest, I had no, I had no expectation of ever making a movie like this. I'm, you know, I come from a film background. My goals were to make movie movies, and still is, <clears throat> yeah. or just straightforward comedies. And uh, my writing partner, Ryan... We were out and I was working on another screenplay at the time and I was actually looking to make that movie and he was like, what if we just did this? And it was like, uh, you know, we, th- we thought about it, wrote it really quickly and it just made sense to do. And uh, most importantly, I think it was different. It's a different experience and knowing that beforehand and kind of doing something we haven't seen before was the exciting part of it. So uh, that was kind of the, the vibe and just the ridiculousness of how far you could stretch somebody sticking things up his butt you know we wanted to see how far we could take that i understand i was in a a comedy metal band that also made movies we made a movie called the woodsman and the entire premise was um because of the double entendre of being in the woods and the killer having an erection at all times oh wow what was the name of your metal band 
uh, first it was called Taint Stick, and then it was called Death, Death, Die. And it was kind of the same thing where we would make a really, a really bad joke and then fall in love with it. And something that had taken us five seconds to conceive, we would spend like 25 hours blowing out to like a proper recording. And there is something sort of beautiful about giving, no offense, uh, a, a bad idea that's not worthy of proper cinematic attention, right. the full Hollywood treatment. The full treatment, exactly. Yeah. We had just never, I have never really, I guess I've seen it in some way, shape, or form in a movie, but not 100% straight. And then the other idea was just to bring in different genres. So yeah. like a genre matchup of movies you've seen and you're familiar with into into this weird, stupid premise the entire time. So Yeah, the vibe is sort of like Taxi Driver or sort of like a De Niro 1970s kind of thing if it was about... Well, let me read the premise, the synopsis. With I don't want to give too much away, but this is the official synopsis just so everybody knows what we're talking about. Detective Fox loves work and alcohol. Well done. After going to AA, his sponsorship becomes the main suspect in his investigation of a missing kid. Fox also starts to believe that people are disappearing up Chip's butt. So this is the film that you you had like craft services and you had to engage with unions yeah, and you had to go get... work with children, which is not yeah. easy. Yeah, well, yeah. Let me ask you about that. Did you know the families that had the kids, or are 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 Hollywood parents just as as depraved and amoral as people would lead us to believe? The answer is B. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, I don't want to say they're immoral in case they ever listen to this, but I mean, right. What were you thinking? You know, <laughs> uh, were there any? You tell me about the process of auditioning children for this. Uh, well, we we were very cautious about it because because of what it is. Uh, yeah, we didn't call the movie Butt Boy on set. We called it like Fox Tail or something. So we just didn't want to keep saying that for every slate in front of the kids, and they're like, "What?" But we we sent out disclaimers in the auditions. We wrote like, "Hey, just to let you know." This is what it is. This is a movie about this, but we're playing it very serious. It's going to be played straight like a drama. And we let all the parents know that beforehand. And they still showed up. <laughs> a lot still showed up. And we auditioned it. Did any of them express that there were any lines, or was it anything goes if my kid gets to be in a movie? We might have had a little bit of that. I can't remember. But in my mind, I was uh, like, I was at a, I'll let them have their little line and then just cut it out of the movie. <laughs> I, like, if they needed something like that, you know, or if it worked, it worked. Like, there was a few things I, cut, I ended up cutting out where they had some lines. But um, yeah, a lot of the times, once you're, the, you're there looking at it, you just want to keep it a little bit more quiet. We were on such a, when we shot in that, that ending, that crazy ending, it was so hot in there. And, you know, it, and it was late at night. So having those kids in there, it was, uh, I was always at the. I always had the clock. I mean, we shot this so gorilla too. I mean, you'd be surprised what we got away with. But um, it was very sketchy. The whole thing. Right, and you just ply them with candy and just try to keep them on. Yeah, I mean, we had your... food and water for everybody. But well, uh, that was big of you. Yeah, but yeah. it was like five in the morning. We were still there, and it was just like. <laughs> So as you kind of touched on, this grew out of these shorts that you're doing on Instagram. As I understand, Instagram extended the length of the videos you were allowed to post, and you saw this opportunity. You could be an Instagram sketch comedy group, sketch film group, so to speak. And it seems like there is a stylistic through line of the tiny cinema stuff just in the last few things you've posted. You've got, obviously... I don't know if you want to call them cannibalistic assholes, for lack of a better term. Right, also, yeah. va also vaginas. I saw some pus-filled, like, fuck wounds. Yeah, they're Did all you... just, it's all stupid shit, yeah. 
Well, but it's there's a lot of different brands of, of stupid. This is a, mm-hmm. a very e- extreme, uh, dark, filthy kind of thing. Did you? How did you come across collaborators with whom you shared this comedic sensibility? Well, we kind of built this. You know, uh, we all had very similar senses of humor, and uh, we, you know, one I met probably five years ago. The other one I've been friends with for ten years. So it kind of come. For the other one, it kind of comes from the core of our friendship. It was, it's been built up for years, and we've had it. And uh, and the other guy just fit right into the mold and brought a different angle into it. And yeah, we all kind of just have six senses of humor, and we like to. Um, we always throw in fake scenarios, like what if, uh, what if I did this right now, you know? And then it becomes a movie. So all of our conversations are like little films discussions almost. So it's like we always say picture. So we say like. A picture it cuts to whatever we'll just be talking about a scenario oh right now it cuts to like a flat like a family guy-esque kind of flashback but it's always has a dark spin on it so it's kind of always been our humor and we all come from um film backgrounds so when we were trying to make the instagram videos it was kind of like this weird thing where we're like we want to do this but it was like we could build a little bit of a following which we did at one point um and you know it just gets people to see the stuff that we're making every week rather than you know, making a little short film and going to a festival and all that. It's like every week we can have thousands of people just watch this little thing that we made and get results and hear what people have to say about it. And um, it was really just great exercise to get people to see your shit and see what makes people laugh and see how far we can push it to, to see if people have the same sense of humor as us. So. Well, right, and there's something nice about the limitation of the how short the videos have to be. You have to be so aggressive totally. with, your, with your storytelling, and you have to make these leaps with your with your cuts, obviously. Yeah, three acts in a minute. That was always right. the thing. And we, uh, we, yeah, it was great editing exercise, too. In fact, it came in so handy even when we did the movie. Like, I was able to cut so much more than I would have, like, two years prior because of these videos. So you learn a lot from it. You just learn you don't need a lot of stuff. But also you sacrifice things too. Like we always have stuff that we wanted to be in there that we couldn't put. So Sure, right. It goes both ways. So you're making these shorts and this is the one that kind of pops with people, right? The reason why you committed to making this one, but boy, the motion picture is because this was the one that had the most native enthusiasm, right? Yeah, and we really enjoy this one. Like we found a tone in this one, I think, that we really wanted to explore more. And we would always joke like, oh, we should extend this and make, like, Butt Boy Part 2 and see where it goes. And then we came up with the crazy ending that's in the movie eventually. That would be crazy if we went there, like, just joking. And then the movie came about, We're like, let's just make it into a movie. So, um, yeah, it was kind of the one that, the first one on our page that did really well, you know, it, like, it hit the millions and some views on some social media outlets. And we were like, oh, people are responding to it for some reason, just like we are. So let's just do it and see what happens, you know? <laughs> so it's interesting. It's a couple times. A couple times now you've said, let's just do it. Let's just make a movie. We all know it's not that easy. I've had this brilliant concept for a movie called rabies babies for years. And the Great asylum title. and the asylum won't even answer my emails, Tyler. I don't even know. I don't know what those guys are doing over there. They're going to make Titanic three before they make yeah. rabies babies. I don't know why. Rabies, rabies is a good title though. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so when uh, w- once you decide this is something that you want to do, does Hollywood come knocking for you or how do you go about uh, pitching? And how this, do you go about funding this? We did this completely uh, independently. So my whole I spent 10 years of my life around 10 years of my life trying to figure out ways. I don't know. But boy, it was going to be the first thing I come out with. But uh, 
you know, you make connections and you talk to different people being here, you know, even you talk to dentists, even you talk to like oil people, whatever you can do, like, oh, I'm, that's going to be a contact that I have to keep contact with. So we had an offer independently from a, a guy who was really willing to do the movie, but he wanted to change. He wanted to make it more uh, fart jokey. Sure. He wanted to make it stupider. And I was kind of like, I'm not going to do it. Like, there's no point. There's no point in doing it because the whole thing is we're trying to make a joke and see how straight we can take it. Yeah. So Respect that was hard. He was going to pay double what we ended up paying for it. But um, somebody that's really a close friend that honestly works with us on this stuff was like, I'll pay half of what that guy was going to offer, but you can do, you know, do whatever we want to do. So we did that. And uh, yeah, ended up working out. So we went with that option. And uh, so believe it or not, but boy, I had two, I had two financial options. <laughs> But, you know, I, it's just building those relationships and talking to people and, um, you know, you just got to make the call, put together. It's just like anything else. You have to pitch it and, like, you have to get people to read past the title page. Like, even this script on paper was a little bit weird. It's like, what? When you read it, you're just like, I don't, you know, it's kind of a visual movie. So it's yeah. hard for, It's hard to make people understand that it's good. You know, we're going to put this style into it and all that. So... I had my storyboards all done. I had like a full layout, full pitch presentation. It sounds ridiculous, but um, and of course there was more people that didn't understand it. I got shit for it. You know, we all got shit for it along the way. I'm not getting what we wanted to do. So, um, but just as much, there was a few people that did get it, and yeah, just enough people to get it. You know. Right. It's obvious that there are legitimate film people at work on this. I don't know that I've ever seen a film in my entire life that waited so long to to do the, the actual title. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's a 70s homage kind of, though. I mean, the, the credit sequence is a, is a 70s homage, I guess. Yeah, for, for the sure. hold on it, and it feels kind of 70s. But yeah, I guess the waiting is more of a contemporary um, film. You ever see The Departed? They wait a little bit longer. Oh, do they? Yeah, that's like that's like twenty minutes in. He's in prison, doing push-ups, and all of a sudden it says, "Oh, no kidding!" Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of your and a lot of European films waited out like that, even contemporary. It's but, lovely. Uh, it's it's jarring because I can't I can't smoke weed anymore. But I had that experience of of the the credit comes up and I go, "No, wait a second. I feel <laughs> as if I've watched twelve minutes of film." But my yeah. experience as a, as a film watcher is telling me that it's only been 90 seconds. So it, it adds to the, the effect of the film in, in general. There's a, very, right, I'm glad. there's a very deadpan tone, obviously, both to your performance. And I mean, nobody has ever played comedy, I don't think, straighter than, than you do in this movie. And, and then the movie in general has that sort of deadpan thing to it. Comedically, where does that come from? Do you draw on any comedic influences that have tried to do funny things in that same incredibly dry, incredibly straight style? Um, my dad's a lot like that. So I think I get it from my dad quite a bit. Uh, we're very dry humor, kind of always been like that. Um, but I mean, I grew up like anybody else. I mean, I've, I have here, like Bill Murray's one of my heroes. Uh, you know, before before the incident, I, I'm a big Louis C.K. fan. I love Louis. Love that show. Uh, let's see. Um, I mean, everyone. Everyone that's sort of dry. And I think it's just kind of built into my essence. My family's kind of like that. And, uh, you know, I think that that's what makes me laugh. When there's stand-up comedians that are like that or wherever I see that in the movie, 
it makes me laugh and it's kind of just who I am. I'm not capable of doing much more as an actor, you know? So uh, <laughs> it kind of just came, that's why you're feeling that. It's like, I, I don't have much range. Like if I scream uh-huh. or, or cry on camera, it's really hard and, to watch and you just want to punch me in the face. So uh, I didn't really have much of a choice with the way like one note monotone, but um, you know, and me being in it wasn't one of those things. I don't feel like I'm one of those people that, has to be in my own stuff. It was almost out of necessity because I was in the short film. Yeah. And uh, I'm probably never going to do that again <laughs> just because it was, I, I, it took away from the directing quite a bit. I had to focus on like a little bit too much. So I want to be able to just focus in on directing next time. But, um, but yeah, it was a good experience overall. And we were comfortable, I guess. Like everybody knew me and it was easy. So what, what does your family think about Boy? Does your dad like it? Uh, they haven't seen it. My parents haven't seen it. I come from a pretty conservative family, so I'm a little bit nervous. Like my dad, I could totally watch it; he'll get a kick out of it. Yeah. Uh, my mom, my mom hasn't seen it. My sisters have seen it. One, you know, they're they like it. You know, it's not like it's weird when you make something this weird. You know, because you have you have the expectation of having when you when your family even tells your family friends, it's, it kind of gets embarrassing because it's like. Oh, it's a movie about a guy putting stuff up his butt. And you always have, there's always that talk that you go back to, uh, you know, when you visit home. Oh, what are you working on? It's like, I'm putting things up my butt in a cinematic crime thriller right now. It's like, no, it doesn't work out. So there's always that. But my parents are really, I send them the press it's gotten. Like, it was a big deal. We got into the New York Times and all that stuff. And that was, yeah. Cool. And they, they got, they got pumped about all that stuff. So they just like to see that. Maybe they'll watch it one day. I'm not sure, but um, I don't want to be there for that. So I, <laughs> I don't blame you. I, again, as somebody who's been involved with making, you know, uh, songs called like fuck your face and movies called the woodsman and stuff like that. I think I've been fortunate in that m- my stuff has been successful enough that I'm gainfully employed and are able to like keep children fed, but it's not so big that they, they have to say, how's your work going? Works going great. And that's sort of, as far as the conversation needs to go. Right. I think it, it's almost like that. Uh, it reminds me of the Goodfellas thing. I think it was Goodfellas, one of those mafia movies where the the kid says his mom doesn't want him to be in the mob. And she says, well, when you show up and you're giving your mom, you buy her a new car, she'll get over that right. in a hurry. And that, right when, you, when, Goodfellas. when you're in the New York Times, yeah. well, it doesn't matter if you butt boyed your way into it on a certain level. Yeah, people start reading about it. And uh, yeah, I got to hear this band of yours, man. Oh yeah, oh, we're, oh, we're sick, dude. We're so good. What um, what sort of feedback have you gotten from? So you're streaming on Amazon Prime. That's that's great. Did that did that exceed your expectations for the movie? Do you get yeah, feedback? From, do they did. do they tell you what sort of what sort of uh, viewership you're getting? Um, you know, a company bought the film, so we, we've had a bunch of surprises along the way. We sent we sent the film into the Toronto Film Festival almost as a joke because it was yeah. the only festival that was out. And we're like. Let's see if we can, uh, let's see what they say about this. I'm just curious. We wanted to get like a laugh at the start. And lo and behold, one of the judges was uh, a Fantastic Fest judge as well. And he got us in there. So we ended up premiering at Fantastic Fest, which was great. It's a really fun festival. And um, there's a lot of great people that go there. I ended up getting my new manager out of there. A lot of, a lot of great things happened from there. Um, and the film got bought there. So... Um, we had, you know, our U.S. distribution is through Epic Pictures. They're like, they're like an indie uh, distribution company that's great. They're so great. They got great press on it. 
And uh, we were very surprised by all that. The press was huge. It, it kind of got a little bit more talked about than we thought it was going to. And that was like the biggest surprise. We had a theatrical release, <laughs> which was crazy. Uh, that was going to be just limited to Alamo Drafthouse theaters around the country, but that was going to be really cool too. We were pumped about that, but it got canceled because the pandemic. And uh, this movie will live on. Whenever we all are all back in movie theaters, I guarantee you there will be midnight showings. Oh, you That's think so? I hope so. It's really the reason I say that. It's really fun in the theater. It's really fun with the group of people. Yeah, uh, we got to see that in Austin for Fantastic Fest, and it was uh, it was fun. So. Yeah, well, because, you know, as well as I do, I'm sure, I, I, there's a reason why I clicked on this sort of thing. There's a reason why I watched Velocipaster the week before. It's easier to come up with the concept than it is to see it through to the end, and it's almost it's almost like a horror movie. The, most of them are scary for the first 10 minutes. It's the classics that remain scary to the end, and if I can get cinematic here for a second, you have to continue to raise the stakes in the story, and where most of them usually peter out, you dramatically raise the stakes for your for your third act so this is going to be something that people are going to want to experience with popcorn oh that's nice of you to say thank you i hope so i hope so have you gotten any feedback from like weird people like fetishists no we we had nazis attack us at one point how's that a group of nazis online uh just attacked one of the Ryan who wrote who wrote it with me. They thought he was Jewish because he has a Jewish ass last name. Whatever you know, we had Jewish people work on the movie, but they attacked him for some reason, and just in a Twitter thing. And uh, they thought that like they couldn't believe that Hollywood would uh, allow a movie like this to be made, and they thought there was all this gay stuff. And of course, they never even saw the movie or anything like that. It was completely ridiculous. we thought it was funny, but uh, yeah, that's the only kind of out there thing that's happened. Like. We were worried about the gay community being offended in some way. I don't know why. We were just, you know, how culture is now. We just didn't know how they were going to handle it. But uh, no, it's been great. Yeah. In a nutshell, I can see how the title could be, if somebody wanted to do nothing more than look at the title, could assume something derogatory right, about right. it. But that's that, that's not the that's not the spirit of Butt Boy. And if you're offending neo-Nazis online, then I'd say you're probably doing something right. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about the other things you're working with Tiny Cinema, the shorts continuing. Is it, I mean, it's hard to work these days. So we shot, right before the pandemic hit, we shot a, a pilot called Tiny Cinema. And it's basically uh, a series of uh, little mini butt boys, basically. So it's like these seven minute, it's a bunch of short films, like our version of the Twilight Zone okay. sort of thing. So. It's a bunch of little stories with different chapters that go into one another, and we shot we shot them sort of large scale and bigger. So we shot that, and that's shopping around now. We already we got an offer from the company that put out Butt Boy to turn that into uh, like an anthology film because they only do film. But we're still waiting on a few TV people that we're talking to to see if like we can get something crazy going. But um, but yeah, so we're we're probably going to be finishing that. We, I, we're leaning towards doing the movie route to put out like another midnight movie kind of thing, where it's a bunch of these things condensed into one, and we can cram it all in, and it'll be like a fun horror experience. So we're working on that, and then I'm just trying to get another movie going for after that. Right now, you know, I'm right. just like pitching all around town and uh, trying to get it trying to get it going. So Zoom pitching is great, from what I hear from other movie maker friends. I prefer it actually. <laughs> why is that i don't like you know i don't like being i'm a weird guy i don't like being in person yeah oh okay so you prefer the mediator i would have liked this with you but to pitch i mean i've had so many bad ones in person like i'd rather deal with it in the privacy of my own home if it doesn't go well you know i, I get that i it's 
funny the stereotypes are often true i find in my very limited experience with hollywood agents it is mm. a, it is amazing the things that they can say to you the inhuman things that they can say with a straight face and a smile Right. And, when, and when you're not trying to do, you know, last year's biggest movie meets last year's second biggest movie, which is their bread and butter. Which is all money based. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They're not going That's to be shy true. about just dissecting and pulverizing your ideas in, in front of you. Totally. And or it's the lack of things that they say, which I've dealt with. It's like <laughs> it'll just be stale air after you're like spilling your heart out and trying to get it. And there's they just say nothing. It's, that's the most brutal. But, uh, you know, you get the good ones, too. Without spoiling plot of the first Butt Boy, uh, is Butt Boy 2 a possibility? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you can direct that one. I, 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 <laughs> I got a lot on my plate, what with what with Rabies Babies and what have you, but I yeah. appreciate that. So not, what do you actually, not with me, though. <laughs> uh, what do you actually want to do? I mean, there's a fine pedigree of people. Peter Jackson was making um, you know, AIDS-riddled, crack-addicted Muppet movies before yeah. he did the Lord of the Rings stuff. So yeah. where, do you, where do you ultimately see yourself? I mean, I always want to do something outside of the box, not to sound like a gross cliche or anything, but I always want to do stuff that's a little bit weird. I have like a movie, you know, the next thing I want to do is like the next step up, the realistic step of what would the next movie look like. And it's another weird offbeat comedy, but it's not about something. So it's not, it doesn't have that extreme, that extreme element to it. You know, you don't want to be pigeonholed into only doing shocking, weird stuff. So you know, if an idea came along, it just it just depends. Like, I get a lot of ideas thrown at me by my writing partner. And the one that I'm trying to pitch now is another idea where it's just like you have this feeling. It's, it's like music, too. I mean, I'm a musician as well. It's like when you write that song, it just kind of it clicks and comes out. That's always, for me anyway, it's always the one that's worth like, oh, that was easy. That was great. Uh, same thing with writing. When you get, for me, when I get an idea and I hear it, I'm like, oh, I can that clicks with me immediately. I can kind of see it from beginning to end, but something about that just feels right. Um, those are the ones you tend to lean towards. And Buff Boy was like that even. I mean, I could, I could really see the tone and like, I could really feel it from the beginning. So uh, yeah, it's just another, I just want to keep making comedies, man, and, and genre matching, you know, putting together, remixing genres you wouldn't typically see in a comedy, you know? Congratulations on, I really think it's a cool thing when, when people uh, are able to work outside of the system and get any movie done. And uh, my wife and I definitely enjoyed the time we spent with Butt Boy. And we'll keep our eye on you and look forward to see what you are doing next. Thank you, uh, Tyler. Okay. Thank movie you. streaming on Amazon Prime. There's also a Blu-ray DVD. Yeah, there's a Blu-ray. And it's pretty much everywhere except Netflix. So it's on iTunes. It's everywhere. So you can get awesome. it. Awesome. Great. Thank you very much for your time, Tyler Corner. Thank you so much. It was nice to meet you. Likewise. Take care.